Hi, everyone. My name is Jeffrey Smith with the Institute for Responsible Technology, and I have explosive information from science. And the information is unsettling about a new application of a technology that's actually more than two decades old. But we're going to hear from Dana Pearls, a campaigner at Friends of the Earth, who co-authored a study on RNA interference pesticides, and Dr. Jonathan Lundgren, who used to be with the USDA, wrote an article and got it published about how the United States US Department of Agriculture does not have the ability to do a proper risk assessment of this new technology and found himself no longer working at the USDA and now is working with an, a nonprofit foundation, running a nonprofit foundation supporting regenerative agriculture. Welcome, both of you. Thank you. Yeah, hi. So we're going to talk about RNA interference. And I'm hoping we're not going to use much jargon here, but we're going to understand this, this technology in a way that we can walk away being able to explain it to others and hopefully create general understanding of why it's probably not a good idea for Monsanto Bear to be introducing it in the form of a pesticide. So Jonathan, why don't you start and tell us what RNA interference is, and then we'll get into some of the dangers for humans, for bees, for the entire ecosystem. Um, well, in its simplest form or, uh, is, it is knocking out specific genes. So we're able to um, sort of flip genes on and flip genes off depending on their DNA sequence. Beautiful. Dana, what are some of the applications of RNA interference that are already out there? Um, we've seen it used in, um, in the early stages, kind of a variation of the flavor saver tomato, but more recently, um, we've seen the GMO apple um, use RNAi, um, which, which effectively, it affects the oxidizing enzyme, right? So that the apple technically wouldn't turn brown. Um, and then we've seen it be used in uh, the, um, yeah, the, 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 the potatoes as well, um, the non, the um, RNAi potatoes. So these are apples and potatoes that are engineered not to turn brown when you slice it because there is a gene which doesn't turn on when this RNA interference uh, molecule is present. So it actually silences the expression of a particular gene. So Jonathan, what are they using? What are they planning to use these sprays for? And what is your concern? Um, well, they're planning on using them as an insecticide, um, at least at first, and I believe that's already been done. Um, so they're using this to knock out critical gene function within insect pests. Um, and they're, yeah. And what happens if that pesticide gets on my skin and penetrates my skin? Is there any chance that that same silencing RNA could influence my gene expression? 
Um, well, we, we don't really know. It's possible, um, and there's some evidence to suggest that that's uh, worth digging into a lot more. Well, if it's possible and it's worth digging into, what are the regulations and requirements for companies like Monsanto and others that want to introduce it? Dana, are you familiar with the regulatory requirements and the loopholes? Yeah, I would argue right now that our regulatory system, both domestically and internationally, is actually not well set up to do the most effective environmental or public health and safety assessments needed. I mean, even the the EPA admitted that, that we don't know enough to ask the right questions to do a thorough assessment. Um, and the idea that this would essentially be an open air experiment, right, that you're, that you're releasing RNAi molecules that could be um, changing uh, gene expression through various generations, and you can't control where it goes. You might try to have it be just for a particular plant, but there's no way to control whether the spray is going to land on a different plant or it might affect an off-target species. So maybe you're trying to affect a beetle, but instead it affects a honeybee. Um, and so the idea of predicting and trying to assess the environmental risks or as as um, Jonathan suggested, the the risks of let's say inhalation of a farmer or a farm worker, and what what could the impact be on on worker safety is is really difficult to try and predict, let alone assess. So currently, um, in the in the EPA, um, there there isn't any sort of appropriate assessment, evaluations, oversight, or regulations, and neither at the U at the United Nations, although at the United Nations currently, um, there has been a push to get this addressed as a new and emerging topic and, and sort of a warning across the world that, that national governments around the world need to be paying attention to this new application because it could have such far-reaching impacts on the environment and, and on worker and, and um, consumer safety. And let's make it clear of exactly what's going on that is being allowed without proper testing. Jonathan, can you explain a little bit about the mechanics of how the RNA interference works as a basis for understanding why it might, the same RNAi piece might block the expression of many different species DNA. Sure. Um, so you have to take a little bit of a step back to kind of understand how this works, right? Um, our genome is made up of little nucleotides, A, C's, T's, and G's, we'll say, for the purpose of discussion. Those are links on a chain. And how they're arranged, those four molecules are arranged on that chain kind of influences what gene is ultimately expressed. So that's your code, right? That's your genetic code. Um, RNAi uh, is an assemblage of, of complementary nucleotides to these ACs, Ts, and Gs. And so it links up there, right? And it folds right on there and it's able to block specific um, sort of uh, transcriptions uh, from your genome before they're made into proteins. And those proteins do things for you. So, 
Um, what happens is that there's a 21 little linkages along this RNAi molecule, and it's searching, and it blocks no matter what, where it occurs within a genome, it will latch on to that, and it'll stop it from being expressed, um, or at least transcribed. Um, and so the... Um, Although it's targeted for a particular gene within an insect pest or a weed or something along those lines, the statistical likelihood that it's going to interact with other places in the genome that might duplicate that same sequence is pretty high. So I remember talking to uh, Professor Jack Heinemann uh, from New Zealand who was uh, evaluating an RNAi wheat that was being proposed. And based on what he understood those 21 uh, sequences or 21 nucleotides were, he looked on the human genome to see if it would have potentially latched on or found a complement in the human genome. And he included th those and put, I think, 80 pages of different sequences uh, that were available, some huge number. So there are, the concept is that when you release this little silencing sequence, it's like um, a little molecule with a, with a clipboard looking around for a sequence in the DNA. And if it finds it, it grabs hold of it in some way, stops the expression, but it doesn't matter whether it's a honeybee or a mouse or a human, as long as that sequence is there. Am I getting this right? Right. And we've looked at a lot of, because uh, we're one of the marketing factors for RNAi is, is that it's very specific for your pest and, and just that one gene. And so we looked at all of the different pesticides, the RNAi-based pesticides that have been developed within the scientific literature we kind of um, compared the gene targets that they were intended to attack with the honeybee genome, similar to what Jack did with the human genome. And boy, every single one of them ended up finding off-target binding sites within the honeybees. Does that mean it's going to silence the genes? Well, no, we don't know that. But certainly it questions this whole concept of specificity. You know, I, I read an article where they took honeybee larvae and exposed it to a meal of RNAi, a single meal, and then tested the gene expression compared to the control group two other times over the next few weeks, and they counted over 1,400 genes that changed their activity levels. And this is about 10% of the genome of the honeybee changed mm. by a single meal. Now, what's interesting is they chose the RNAi for this experiment. It was from luminescent jellyfish or something because it was so radically different in a species, they were expecting this would become used as a control group. In other words, they predicted it would have no effect on the honeybee DNA expression of proteins. And yet, about 10% of the genes changed their levels of protein expression. Mm -hmm. And I would, 
Yeah. I would add that that what they're finding in the in the studies is that um, that that change that impact spreads across generations. And part of the selling point that that we had heard previously is not only is it precise and specific, but that but that this is something that that will only affect um, organisms right now. Um, but in in fact, the scientific literature is suggesting that the potential impacts could be inherited. Can you explain the mechanisms for that, Jonathan, how you can, because I know the DNA doesn't rearrange, but its expression changes, has, so it's an epigenetic effect. Can you explain how that can be passed on from one generation to another? Well, I'm not entirely sure exactly how it's all happening in, within uh, these organisms, and I think that that says a lot. Um, the fact that it there is some heritability in certain model organisms um, really suggests that there's a lot more to look into with that. But um, it could be this is a rapidly developing field. It could be that we've discovered why these are so heritable. I'm not sure yet. Well, we do know from studies that where a pregnant mouse was fed a particular diet and the hair color changed in the offspring, um, because the gene expression was changed, not the genes, but the gene expression. And lo and behold, the offspring's offspring also had that hair color. Am I right on this, on this score? That it was passed down, that the chain, the epigenetic change was in fact inheritable? Uh, I'm not familiar with that study. Um, Dana, did you see that one? No, I'm not familiar with that study. I think one of the questions um, with with RNAi in terms of ingestion is whether it could interfere with human uh, genome expression, um, because there were some studies um, that 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 raised raised questions about um, ingestion, um, where they where they found you know that that the RNAi could also play a really key role in regulating physiological conditions. Um, and I believe that was a mouse study. And so that, that suggests that if, if there could be interference with, 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 with genome expression um, in animals, that it would be worthwhile to also investigate if there could be an impact from like inhalation, if there were a farm worker around the spray or any implications from, for consumers. But as Jonathan said, there's a lot of really important questions that need to be examined and, and we shouldn't be taking that risk um, you know, by putting this out onto the market and into the environment ahead of understanding what those risks are. Dana, um, Oh, go ahead, Jonathan. One of the mechanisms that might be going on, though, is is when we were looking at into the honeybee genome, like in that study that I explained before, we found that a lot of the genes that were potentially silenced were developmental genes, and they might not be expressed in that initial generation. They might be expressed downstream just by knocking out the uh, um, the transcription of those. So there's kind of potential genetic time bombs being planted in one generation. We saw that in the uh, University of Washington, Dr. Skinner Labs, where they injected Roundup into the into uh, pregnant mice, and the offspring were okay, but the grandchildren did not fare so well. And the great grandchildren were the worst, where 90% showed some significant reaction 
and that the epigenetic markers were found on the sperm cell and in the each generation. So the application of a poison in one generation affected the fourth generation uh, most. Here we have eating an apple or a potato, where we are eating, ingesting a small piece of RNA interference could, correct me if I'm wrong, theoretically, since it hasn't been tested, we don't know, could theoretically change the way our genes express and possibly the way our offspring's genes can express. And now they want to put that into sprays, which we can potentially inhale or get the spray on our skin, which might penetrate, or we may eat the food with the spray on it and that way ingest the spray. Am I tracking right, Jonathan? Well, I, you know, I think that I think that there's a presumption here in that um, you know we're exposed to RNAi. This isn't a unique mechanism, right? This is a this is a mechanism that every one of our cells uses every minute of every day to regulate gene expression. Um, there's a presumption that because it is a part of our lives, it is in every food that we're eating, we're being exposed on our skins and things like that, that it can't hurt us. Um, and, and the fact that pesticidal RNAs are so effective at killing pests suggests just the opposite, that these RNA molecules are, can actually have an effect on higher organisms. But boy, it also really, I mean, it really gets complicated really quickly because there are a lot of environmental RNAs, but it's not, it's not a massive doses of a single RNA that you're being exposed to within a normal, uh, within a normal contact event or exposure event, like you would be in the case of a spray or a, or a genetically modified food. So the argument is because RNAi is out there anyway, it's this safe. is just more of the same. And yet they tried to use the argument that, you know, genes create proteins. Proteins are good for you. We have proteins in our bodies. Therefore, it doesn't matter what the protein is. This was an argument made 20 years ago. And it was mm -hmm. like, this is really stupid biology. Or that it's just DNA. DNA is safe because it's in our bodies and we're just changing the DNA. Just... Mm -hmm not very intelligent. Danny, you wanted to say something. Yeah, I think, again, the implication, you know, yes, there are naturally occurring RNA uh, interference molecules, but when you're synthesizing um, new ones that are specifically designed to, to, to turn off genes or to silence genes, and, if, and not just any genes, but the survival genes, and you add that to the risk that um, this could impact, you know, trees or some other crop or honeybees or other really critical crops, you know, the unintended consequences at a time when we're already seeing biodiversity loss, massive biodiversity loss on this planet, and that we would release um, an, another application that could um, increase biodiversity loss that wasn't even intended. You know, it's, it's, it, this is an I think the, the bigger point is that it's an unnecessary risk. We don't actually need this technology. Um, and and Jonathan then could certainly speak more to that. And, and, and I would add another big point that we haven't discussed, which is that um, 
the RNAi pesticides, the gene silencing pesticides, really raise urgent questions around property rights over nature um, and the need for people, not corporations, to decide whether they want to be part of an open air experiment. You know, there are companies like Monsanto that are filing patents for gene silencing sprays that don't just patent the RNA molecule, um, but also the plant itself and all of its offspring. And so really this constitutes a really massive expansion of privatization of our food system and, and nature. And this can pose a threat to farmers, um, you know, in the, in the case that what if the RNAi, the, the gene silencing spray were to drift on the surrounding land or farms or local ecosystems, and that could then modify any number of non-target plants and insects including trees and beneficial insects like honeybees, but that what if those organisms, because of the patent, now become property of the agrochemical company? So really we have environmental questions, we have health questions, but also we have this big question of who owns the farm and this ex potential expansion of, of property rights and you know these big chemical agrochemical companies having even more uh, ownership over 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 nature and our and our food system. Excellent point, and it's a point that sometimes gets lost unless you happen to be a farmer where your crops were contaminated by Monsanto's seeds, and now you understand that there were court cases about that, and they didn't go well for farmers. So we have precedents of the bullying and the use of laws by Monsanto, the use of patents that don't leave. Um, that don't leave us safe. And it's unnecessary. It's completely unnecessary to, to, you know, to use this. And we have lots of sustainable, less risky um, management systems that can use on farms. And, you know, I'm not a farmer, but I've read the work of Jonathan and others who um, have made it clear that this is another uh, tool for corporate profit. And, and this is a risk that is not necessary to take for people or the environment. And, and Jonathan, speaking of things you've written, can you tell us first the reaction of the USDA to the article you wrote when you were a USDA scientist and what it was about the article that raised their, well, we'll use the word concern. Um, well, uh, the, the article was um, published in, in uh, Bioscience. It was a review of RNAi and uh, the unintended consequences and some of the risk um, characterization for that compound. Um, they weren't, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was a very controversial issue. They were, um, uh, it was subjected to several additional peer reviews um, by administrators that didn't necessarily have a whole lot of expertise in this area, and um, they removed a lot of teeth from the paper. Um, we then um, published something or tried to publish something uh, that the honeybee study that ultimately was published, um, but they blocked that one altogether. And so they said that it was, um, uh, yeah, that this wasn't the kind of thing that they wanted to be involved in. So uh, did you get any particular uh, pressure um, or any kind of what was their reaction to you and your position? 
Right. Well, uh, I was the golden boy of the USDA. Um, things were going real well, and following our starting to uh, investigate this as well as um, neonicotinoid insecticides, which is another um, pretty widespread use of uh, pesticides in the environment right now. Um, that, yeah, it ended up uh, leading to scientific suppression and and other problems that really shouldn't be going on. So you just left the you left the agency because of their suppression and the bill and, and tell me tell put in your own words. Uh, well, harassment started to increase. Um, restrictions on just daily activities, uh, interactions with the press. I was muzzled entirely. Um, and then finally, they started to ask me to pull my name off of off of papers and and things like that, and that just isn't right. And so uh, I filed a whistleblower complaint and and uh, left the USDA. And uh, now it became real clear that um, number one, there was viable solutions to these issues that Dana just mentioned with regenerative agriculture and and other ecologically intensive farming um, that they weren't particularly interested in pursuing. And, um, and then also that the whole dialogue on genetically modified crops and risk assessments of pesticides and things like that was really corrupted. And, um, and, and for us to move forward, it really became increasingly clear that that science needed to be kind of rethought, at least how we apply science to this really formative stage of our food production system right now. Um, we're a transformative phase of the, our, our food production system. So uh, that's what we're trying to do at Ecdysis Foundation is kind of rethink how we apply science um, in order to make our food system much more resilient without the need for all of these uh, all of these expensive and uh, uh, tools that have un unintended consequences that we really don't need to be worried about. Well, first of all, thank you on behalf of everyone for speaking your truth and being willing to pursue what you knew to be true in the face of suppression, in the face of, of, of biased policymaking, of a corrupt regulatory regime, which you said is a corrupt way of evaluating and, and approving GMOs. Um, and in a moment, I'm gonna ask you and, and Dana to share your contact information in terms of the organizations you work with and how people can learn more. But um, can you tell us, what do you think the motivation is or the who's calling the shots at the USDA forcing them or inspiring them to muzzle the science and corrupt the regulatory process? Um, well, uh, large corporate interests um, end up making campaign donations. Um, those campaign donations influence elections. Um, elect elected officials then govern the budgets for the federal and state governments, right? Um, and so when there's noisy scientists or things start to challenge the agenda of large corporate interests, um, 
know, there's a real risk by administrators within certain departments um, of losing their funding. And, and that affects everybody that they care about, right? And so uh, a lot of times it's much easier to, to simply suppress science rather than um, that doesn't need to be done, right? Doesn't need to be done for us to be doing a good job. Um, but that's how scientific dialogue is manipulated. Um, and I know I, I saw your presentation uh, in Mexico at the uh, Convention of Biological Diversity, and I know you're in charge of an organization now that you haven't stopped your mission to understand the truth and apply uh, more intelligent uh, science to the growing of our food and to our entire agricultural ecosystem. Can you share the name, spelling, and, and the URL where people can go to your website to learn more about what you're doing? Sure. Um, Ecdysis Foundation, E-C-D-Y-S-I-S dot bio. Or you can look on uh, Blue Dasher Farm is, is the location um, of where we're doing our research. And we are on Facebook and Twitter under those handles. Beautiful. And Dana, uh, can you share what you, I, I have enjoyed learning from you for years. You are an expert in so many areas working with Friends of the Earth. Can you share a little bit about what you do and how people can follow your work? Sure, I am the program manager for the food and technology program at Friends of the Earth. So focused on things like gene silencing pesticides and new and emerging technologies that are being proposed or applied to in particular to agriculture um, and conservation and just looking, you know, making sure that what we're doing is actually in the best interest of people and the planet. So uh, Friends of the Earth is the organization and that can be found at foe.org uh, and my name is Dana Pearls and you can reach me at dpearls at foe.org. Beautiful. Before we go, I'll start with you, Jonathan. Is there anything else that we didn't cover that you think would be important for people to know? Take whatever time you need. Well, these are scary times, right? And it's very easy to focus on, on the the fear and the uncertainty associated with new technologies and stuff. Um, I also think that it's a really hopeful time. And we have very, very good solutions that improve our natural resources of our farms while making farmers more profit and resilient to changing the changing planet. Um, and so, uh, I really love the idea of focusing our attention on those positive solutions where everybody wins under those circumstances. So to me, this is a really exciting and hopeful time. And, and that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be paying attention and, 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 and critical of, of, um, of potentially harmful things, but also that we need to be focusing on the solution as well. Thank you so much for bringing that in. It's uh, it's easy to get lost in the sauce on the risks, but both of you talked about how their technology is not necessary because there are other ways that can accomplish not only the same thing, but do it in better ways with better side benefits rather than side effects. Yeah. And uh, um uh, you said everyone wins. Perhaps Monsanto's not on that list, and and that the people that contribute to the 
to the campaigns are not on that list, but humanity does survive, does benefit, and the ecosystem benefits. Okay. Thank you, for, thank you for that, Dana. Is there are there some is there uh, something you'd like to share that we haven't covered? Just to emphasize that that uh, gene silencing pesticides uh, take us in the opposite direction in terms of protecting the environment, ensuring safety of people, and um, and and also protecting rights of nature. Um, and based on the evidence that we have available, these gene silencing pesticides. Um, we, we can't we can't assure their safety and as Jonathan said rather than perpetuating this pesticide treadmill um, we have ecological farming methods uh, that really underpin organic and and other forms of ecological agriculture that offer the true solution and and we have a lot of science that shows that farmers who rely on ecological farming methods uh, for pest management instead of pesticides can meet or even in some cases outperform the conventional counterparts in terms of yields and profits. So really we have the pathway forward in a way that is going to be ecological and safe for people and the planet and and we need to really be prioritizing that over over corporate profit. Beautiful and I want to add my last two cents. Um, some few decades ago, RNA was basically written off as just a way station. There was the DNA and the RNA was just a bridge to get the proteins to be made. And there wasn't a lot of deep understanding or certainly wasn't taught that way. It turns out now that RNA plays a key role in how DNA expresses, how much. It is a regulatory element that we are just now getting a grasp of. Now, we also used to think that, you know, you could look at all the nutrition in food just as vitamins and minerals. Now we know there's phytonutrients, but there's also RNA. And it turns out that some of the RNA in the foods that we eat can beneficially program or change the expression of our DNA. So this is a way that the intelligence of nature in food becomes incorporated in the intelligence of our body. And it's only a very recent science. And so we are learning more and more about what is nutrition, what is, what do we get from food? And now that we've discovered, oh, we're getting some of this DNA programming from our food, we are still babes in the woods in this regard. And yet the biotech industry wants to jump in and manufacture millions or billions or trillions or many more amounts of certain types of RNAi and release it in the environment in sprays or put it in the food without really understanding the transfer of this intelligence from the food into our bodies. And if it's not the proper intelligence, if it's, if it's not supporting our health, perhaps it is damaging our health, but we don't know because the research the state of the science is not there so that we cannot make these type of changes in the food supply in a safe and predictable way or in the ecosystem in a safe or predictable way. So I see this as an arrogant, uh, narrow focused reductionist thinking where we discover a little bit about science and then in the effort to commercialize it, we ignore life. So that's my two cents on RNA interference. 
I want to thank you both for joining us. Anything else you want to share before we, we go? I'm all good. All right. Thank, thank you. you all. And thank you, Jonathan, and thank you, Dana. Thank you. Bye now. Safe eating. Thank you for listening to Live Healthy, Be Well. Please subscribe to the podcast using whatever app you listen to podcasts with. Or go to livehealthybewell.com to subscribe. This podcast will inform you about health dangers, corporate and government corruption, and ways we can protect ourselves, our families, and our planet. I interview scientists, experts, authors, whistleblowers, and many people who have not shared their information with the world until now. Please share the podcast with your friends. It will enlighten and may even save lives. Safe evening.